From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Domestic violence deaths are at an all-time high in Colorado for the second year in a row. We'll dig into the details of a sobering report just released by Colorado's Attorney General's Office and hear from a woman who calls herself a victor, not a victim. For all intents and purposes, I look normal. But for any victim who's gone through domestic violence, you know, it's a scar you carry on the inside. It will always be part of me, but I don't let it be me. Then, a new Speaker of the House has been elected. CPR's Washington, D.C. correspondent Caitlin Kim tells us what finally unified Colorado's Republican delegation. Uh, The reality is that that we can't go through this uh, exercise again. I think we will move forward and everybody will be more willing to compromise. As a listener, you've heard the call for member support. But maybe you wonder, do they really need me? Well, the simple answer is yes. CPR gets none of its funding from the state and only a small fraction from federal grants. The vast majority comes from the community, and over half of that comes from individual contributions. That's why your gift of any amount matters. Start your all-important membership at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. The number of domestic violence deaths in Colorado reached an all-time high last year, for the second year in a row. That's according to a report released by Colorado's Attorney General's Office this week. Today, we'll dig into the sobering statistics outlined in that report with the Attorney General, Phil Weiser, and also find out what's being done in our state to address this issue. Attorney General Weiser, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me on. Phil, we'll speak with you in just a little bit. But first, we're going to share the deeply personal story of a woman who sits on the Colorado Domestic Violence Fatality Review Board, which worked with your office on the report. For Bridget Dyson, this report is much more than just a lot of numbers and a lot of nameless, faceless people, mostly women, who lost their lives at the hand of someone they've loved and trusted For her, it's a reminder of her own nightmarish experience with domestic violence here in Colorado. Bridget, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Well, first off, thanks so much for your service serving on this board, but also for taking time out today to share your experience to help us really put this issue into perspective. Well, it's good to be a voice. Uh, A lot of people can't be here, and uh, I'm glad I can be a voice. And I should note, Bridget's story includes some very graphic details of violence, so please listen at your own discretion. I have to take a deep breath because uh, even just in reading this, but in December 2016, Brighton police found you lying in a pool of blood between two vehicles in the parking lot of the Sterling Park Apartments. You were so badly injured that at first, officers believed you had been bludgeoned with a weapon. Mm-hmm. But further forensic evidence showed otherwise. Take us back to that day. What happened? Um, so it was 20 days before Christmas, and I had just finished work. Um, my last message was to my son, who is an active duty Marine, very proud of him. Um, he's still serving out of the country. But long story simple, um, when I arrived home, my ex was hiding 
And uh, first he beat me on my son's car. Evidence can show that. And I fought back. Evidence shows that as well. But he got into my small little brand new Ford that I just bought on my own. So I was really, that was an accomplishment for me to mm. buy my Ford. Um, and he ran over my head. And then he ran over it again. Then brains everywhere, literally. Um, he stuffed me under my son's car and took off. And so my neighbor was outside on her balcony. She was smoking a cigarette. And again, December 5th, it was freezing cold out. It was after midnight. She heard a woman cry. Now, I've seen the videos at sentencing in 2017. Mm -hmm. I actually saw the videos um, of when the first responders got there. Mm -hmm. And um, they drove by me the first time because I was stuffed under my son's car well, then they drove around again, and then they could see, like, a scarf, and they could see blood, and they were like, oh, my gosh, like, there's got to be somewhere, somebody somewhere. They found me underneath my son's car. So, yeah. And you were basically left for dead. Oh, absolutely. I should not be here. I should not be here. Not be here. I have titanium uh, drilled in my head. I've had four surgeries. Um, I have titanium in my knee. I have 17 scars. I was in an induced coma for almost six months. So, yeah. And coming out of that a coma and you look at yourself and you're just like, where did all this time go? Who is this person? And you have to start all over again. And before we talked, you shared with me mm -hmm. here in the studio a picture of the day you were injured. And it's honestly indescribable. And when you say, I shouldn't be here that picture definitely says that. Yeah, I should not. I should not. It is, uh, you know, for those who believe, if you don't, uh, but there is a higher power. So, yeah, I call him the man upstairs. But, yeah, I was saved that night. I was very blessed. Yeah. And your skull cap had to be rebuilt with the use of your right leg. Correct. I'm missing a third of my right leg. Yes. And I have 30 pins in it right now holding it together. So, yeah. Well, I'm sitting here across from you right now, and I can honestly say you do not look like what you've been through. <laughs> well, most victims, too. It's, it's you know, it's for all intents and purposes, I look normal. But for any victim who's gone through domestic violence, you know, it, it's a scar you carry on the inside. Mm. That's something I will always be. It will always be part of me, but I don't let it be me. So I'm not what happened to me. I'm who I became because of it. Now, you did leave the relationship, which was extra complicated because of your citizenship status at the time. Mm -hmm. What happened to your ex-husband? Well, we were already divorced for a year. This happened a year after the divorce. I moved out. My son moved in with me. My daughter moved to Arizona. And he had embezzled $60,000. And it just, the story, it just escalates. And he needed somebody to blame for all his misfortunes. So rather than owning it, he just, you know, he blamed me. Hence the attack. So, yeah. And he was later found guilty of first-degree attempted murder. Yes. After deliberation as an act of domestic violence. Yes. And he is currently serving a 35-year sentence. Yes. Yeah. And he filed for an early release last year, and you had to face him in court. He did. He filed for a 35B, um, and that is early release. And um, I will say that uh, I was very supported in that court date, and I told my district attorney 
that I wanted this done. I was very adamant that I wanted this done in person. I wanted to see him. I hadn't seen him since sentencing. Mm. And um, I looked my best. I put my best foot forward, and um, he was denied. So, yeah, he was denied. But just the audacity. But, again, this all goes back to domestic violence, the 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 control power, the, you know, I want to get out early, the not owning it, you mm. know, all those, you know, people, that's what they do. Narcissistic, you know, that's what they do. Well, research shows that physical abuse tends to escalate over time. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure there are many people out there listening who are saying to themselves, oh, I would never take any treatment like that. And the first time it happened, I'd be out the door. Mm-hmm. What's your response to that? And What do you want people to know about common misconceptions about domestic violence situations like yours? You know, so I'm from Canada. I'm here on a green card. I've been here 19 years. I'm legal. (laughs) Um, But uh, long story simple, um, you know, he threatened to take that away from me. He was my sponsor. And recently, uh, very recently, I noticed that um, my green card was expiring. And I was like, I hadn't thought about this in 10 years, because mm. that's how long ago I renewed it. it was 10 years ago. But there's a new Violence Against Women Act, uh, I-360. So if you're from another country and you suffer from domestic violence, this enables you to fly solo. I am flying solo right now. So yeah, so it feels very, very good. And the smile on your face <laughs> when you say that is awesome. <laughs> yes, I can tell. I would imagine being a part of this review board is very tough and emotional, but is it also cathartic and has giving back helped you heal? Uh, Oh, absolutely. It's part of the healing process. Yeah, I was actually a victim services unit volunteer for four years with the Adams County Sheriff's Office. Great, great, great resource uh, if you need help. But yeah, great team. Um, And I've seen a lot of things. I've walked on a lot of, you know, violent death notifications, um, Dead children, domestic violence, I've seen at the hospital, at the ER, and it's not just women, it's also men. But again, I don't know, this is all going back to Christmas. It's truly a miracle. I don't know how somebody goes through something as traumatic as I did, but then the outlook is so positive. You know, so yes, it is part of the healing. I want to give back and I want to let other victims know you know, say something. It doesn't have to be that bad. You know, get out. And on the other side, it, it's, it's, it's wonderful. It really is a great experience. And I would wish more victims would think about that and the repercussions that it has on their children as well. Now, December is not that far away. How is December for you? Do you find that you are reflective? Do you do anything to commemorate that experience? Uh, So October is very empowering for me because I like to get to be a voice. Like I said, you know, Gabby Petito, she can't be a voice, you know, and there's so many others. But December 5th for me is my celebration night. I celebrate. I will have a glass of champagne. I will be with friends. And, you know, I think I ran out of tears six years ago, you know, and it's okay for any victim. It's okay to cry. It's okay you know, just to be sad. It, we're, we're human. We're human. You've just been through so much and it's okay. But take that as a lesson. You know, being challenged in life 
is inevitable. Being defeated is optional. Love that. You know, it's like don't let that beat you. An abuser has no chance of winning over a victim that is going to win, not is, is going to win. Bridget, how are you doing now? I'm awesome. I am actually awesome, yeah. Yes. Thank you for asking. We don't always hear stories like yours in media reports, so people may be under the impression that this doesn't happen as much as it actually does. Do you want more media attention to domestic violence cases, and do you think it would make a difference? I don't want it. It needs to be done. It needs. It is so prevalent in Colorado itself. It needs to be done. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Billboards. There's so many billboards for CBD or for beer or how about a billboard just for, you know, a resource, you know. And I know October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. It's like, but these two causes, we're we're both trying to do one thing, survive, whether you have breast cancer or your domestic violence. We're just trying to survive. Definitely. And October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. It is. Is there anything you want to say about the work that this board is doing and the impact you believe your team is having here in Colorado in terms of addressing this issue? Oh, I think the work is just, uh, it needs to, it's in abundance. It, it's, it's just, this report this year, I think, is the best one. I was actually in the 2019 report. Um, they used my story. But um, I just think it's just, it's shedding light on what needs to be seen. Bridget, thanks so much for speaking with us today. And we never want to underestimate how tough it is to recount such a painful experience. A tenacity. Thank you very much for letting me be a voice uh, for those who can't. And uh, hopefully uh, this impacts and this is a um, little kind of resonates with people when they listen. So, yeah, say something. That was Bridget Dyson, a member of the Colorado Domestic Violence Fatality Review Board, speaking with us about the results of a report released this week about intimate partner violence deaths. It found that the number of domestic violence deaths in Colorado reached an all-time high last year, and it's the second year in a row that our state reached a record high number. When we come back, we dig into the details of the report with Colorado's Attorney General, Bill Weiser, and he tells us what's being done here in Colorado in terms of support, prevention, and resources. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. I'm Jenna McMurtry. As a news intern for CPR this summer, I covered health, education, and justice across Colorado. You also heard me on NPR a few times. CPR offers opportunities like these and more to current students and recent graduates to set up the next generation for success. Learn more about our internships and fellowships at CPR.org jobs. Today we're talking about the findings of a domestic violence report released this week by Colorado's Attorney General's Office that shows domestic violence deaths are at an all-time high for the second year in a row here in Colorado. Before the break, we heard from Bridget Dyson, a domestic violence survivor who sits on Colorado's Domestic Violence Fatality Review Board, which produced this report with Colorado's Attorney General's Office. Attorney General Phil Weiser chairs that board, and he joins us now. Thank you again for being here. 
Thank you for having me on. According to the report, the total number of domestic violence deaths in Colorado was almost one and a half times higher than the average number of deaths since data collection started in 2017. And this is the second year in a row that Colorado reached a record high number. Can you put these numbers into context for us? I can, and I do have to acknowledge that we're not 100% sure that we're apples to apples from 2017 to today because it's possible that we've gotten better at recognizing domestic violence fatalities. So the 94 that we captured in 2022 could have been because we're seeing deaths for what they are. Part of the challenge is there's such a stigma. Mm. There's shame. And sometimes people could die in a domestic violence situation, and we might not know it. And that's something that we want to work on, more awareness. Obviously, the pandemic contributed some to domestic violence. We see more mental health challenges. There's signs that there is more violence out there, but it's hard to know for sure. Are we seeing more deaths because they're domestic violence deaths, or are we just getting more accurate in labeling them? And from what I understand in this report, in 2022, domestic violence-related incidents claimed at least 94 lives in Colorado. Among these, 39 were killed by their current or former intimate partners, and 22 were collateral victims, including six children and two peace officers. This is very important to underscore. I'll start with the peace officers. We only lost two law enforcement officers in 2022. They both sacrificed their lives to protect victims of domestic violence. It is a very dangerous situation. Mm. The more quickly we can assess what is a dangerous domestic violence situation, the more likely we can protect not only victims of domestic violence, but also protect law enforcement officers, neighbors, or others, particularly kids. And you mentioned the six kids whose lives were sacrificed. That only touches the surface of the amount of trauma. Kids who witness, who are close to domestic violence, their lives can be forever impacted in such harmful and painful ways. Tell us about the process to complete the report and how many intimate partner violence cases were reviewed. The challenge is we need to get information from as many sources as we can. We're very fortunate to have a lot of people volunteering time. I know that you got to hear from Bridget Dyson, one of the board members. We have lots of people around the state. We've been working to set up domestic violence fatality review boards around the state, all of which can feed us information. So we've been working on building a network. We work with the Rose Andam Center in analyzing information. And then as I adverted to earlier, a big judgment call is how do you decide what a domestic violence fatality is? Some cases are very clear cases. Other ones, they may not be as clear cut. And from what I understand, guns continue to be the leading cause of death in domestic violence fatality cases here in Colorado. It's not even close. The number every year is in the 80 percent-ish range. And what this means is when someone is looking like they could be a perpetrator of domestic violence, looking like they could be a threat, it's essential that we remove the firearm. We know that can save lives by removing firearms. We have a law that calls for relinquishment of firearms by perpetrators of domestic violence. That law, unfortunately, isn't always working as it's intended. One of the conclusions of our report is how do we ensure it works better than it's working now? Yeah, 86% of the fatalities involved guns. Colorado's red flag law was expanded in April. It allows law enforcement, family members, and others to ask the court for an extreme risk protection order, or ERPO. 
to take away the guns temporarily of anyone they think is a threat to themselves or others. Do you think the state's red flag law is making a difference in terms of domestic violence cases? I believe our red flag law is making a difference. I also believe it's not making enough of a difference. We have a specialized red flag law just for domestic violence cases that requires those under a protective order to commit to relinquish their weapons. Unfortunately, sometimes they might just check the box saying, I am relinquishing my weapons, but not do it. Part of what we need to make sure we're doing is raising awareness about the importance of removing firearms, raising awareness about the availability of our red flag law, which of course can also protect victims of domestic violence, and then training law enforcement on how to do that effectively. This is a real priority for our office. We're going to be getting some of the federal grant funds in the federal gun safety law that was passed. We've got to do better. Tell us about some of the factors that the Colorado Domestic Violence Fatality Review Board uses to determine if a death was caused by domestic violence. Obviously, a key question is, were there intimate partners involved? Mm -hmm. And if there's intimate partners involved and then there are deaths around it, it starts to look very much like the death could be occasioned by domestic partner abuse and violence. One of the challenges, by the way, in our prior version of our uh, gun safety law was it didn't apply to boyfriend, girlfriends, only apply if they're married. Domestic violence doesn't have to be a married couple. It could be a couple who is in an intimate relationship and violence is part of that relationship. One of the challenges that is worth emphasizing is a lot of times if people are afraid to admit We may not know that there was real domestic violence there, and it may look like it was more of an accident or something else was going on. We need to make sure that those who were victims are getting the services they need, know that it's not their fault, know that there are people there to support them. And there were some additional findings from the report. For example, in domestic violence fatality cases in which the domestic violence perpetrator died, 70% of perpetrators died by suicide, but perpetrators were also killed by law enforcement, victims, and bystanders. There's a few points there worth underscoring. One is a perpetrator will, in many cases, have a murder-suicide. So they will kill their partner or attempt to kill their partner, and then they'll kill themselves. One of the ways we need to think as a state about this problem is how do we provide resources to those who commit domestic violence so they're less likely to continue doing so. That's something that concerns me. And I also would get back to the kids. There's also strong evidence showing that kids who grow up in homes with domestic violence are actually much more likely to engage in domestic violence themselves. That underscores the importance of providing support and services for kids who are victims of domestic violence as well. And then on the law enforcement side, ideally our law enforcement officers get better about recognizing the potential for violence as opposed to dealing with the actuality of violence. That's why we're working so hard to train them on a lethality assessment tool so that when they come to a call where they know there's potential for domestic violence, they can start looking hard and saying, wait a minute, this could escalate. We've got to do something. In response to the findings, you have said the report serves as, quote, a sobering reminder of the critical work we all must undertake to combat domestic violence in our state. The numbers are alarming and should catalyze action, end quote. What does taking action look like from where you sit as Colorado's attorney general? 
I have mentioned that we need more resources and services. Let me say what that means. Right now, there are many victims of domestic violence, particularly in more rural parts of our state, mm. who have no place to go. If you're here in Denver, the Rose Andam Center is really an unbelievable family justice center. In Jefferson County, there's a Porchlight Family Justice Center. But that's not the rule. That's the exception. The rule is many victims of domestic violence don't know where they can go. There's not a shelter, for example, available to them. There are not resources available to them. This is an area that we've got to get more focused on. Our office is giving out $3 million in grants to provide more services so the victims of domestic violence can be supported and we can save lives. This report underscores that domestic violence continues to be a serious threat overwhelmingly to women in Colorado. You have said that we all must work toward greater gender equality and more robust efforts to prevent domestic violence. We don't always hear domestic violence spoken of in the context of larger systemic issues with gender inequality in our society. In your view, what role does it play? It's important to call this out. Whether it's domestic violence, whether it's stalking, or other crimes that we know tend to be committed by men against women, these are crimes of power. These are crimes that have the intended and the actual effect of, you often hear the phrase, putting women in their place. That fear that results can be debilitating, can be crippling, and that results in a power dynamic that is oppressive, that is abusive. So yes, it's important to recognize the gender realities. Domestic violence is generally a crime committed by men against women. It undermines the ability of women to have equal dignity, equal opportunity. It's critical that we work together to protect victims, particularly those who are vulnerable. What's being done right now in Colorado in terms of efforts to prevent and decrease incidents of domestic violence? There are a couple of points I want to highlight. The first one is one that all of us can play a part. We need to raise awareness. We need to decrease the shame and stigma. Along with Bridget Dyson, who was here, we joined a rally. And the rallying cry to victims it's not your fault. We need to let victims know there's support services available for them. We need to get more services. We need to create more awareness. Secondly, with respect to law enforcement interventions, we need to make sure those are earlier and those are more effective, that we train law enforcement for these encounters, that we train them to assess when they can become deadly so they can ensure effective intervention. And we need our judicial process to function better supporting victims and making it easier. One thing that's been done, for example, in the family justice centers I've mentioned, is allowing victims to testify remotely so they're not in the courtroom necessarily with an abuser. That's a very traumatizing situation to put someone in. So this report your office just released is the work of the Colorado Domestic Violence Fatality Review Board. We heard earlier from Bridget, a survivor who's on that board, can you tell us more about the type of people who serve on the board and the work that they do as members? I feel very fortunate to be living and working in a state where collaboration, where a commitment to making a difference is the rule. Bridget's experience is harrowing, and her commitment to protecting others is inspiring. And I'll tell you, other members of this board 
come with their own life experience, their own dedication. We have prosecutors on this board. We have public health professionals on this board, defense lawyers on this board. We want to make sure that we're seeing all sides of what we know is a very important issue so that as we look at these fatalities, we can always ask, how do we improve? And the volunteers on this board are putting in hours and hours of their time because of their commitment to serving the people of Colorado. This board, which again you chair as attorney general, is focusing broadly on domestic violence prevention in 2024, in addition to some specific recommendations included in the report. Tell us about these recommendations. We touched on the point about firearms, and that's something that I again want to call out. We've got to get better at moving firearms when we know there is a real risk that the owner, the perpetrator of domestic violence, will kill a partner. We talk in the report about the lethality assessment process that we're training law enforcement in. That's something we're committed to continue doing. We're also committed to looking at where there are a lack of resources and how we can find more resources to help serve the people of Colorado. I also mentioned this is very important, raising awareness, helping people know that they're not alone. There are support services out there and that we can help people who are struggling with domestic violence find a better path. Are you surprised by any of the findings in the report? I am mostly saddened Mm. that year after year, we continue to see painful stories, in many cases, situations that could have been averted had people known more sooner, law enforcement been able to act sooner. This is, as I said, a call to action for all of us. We have to recognize that these tragedies are not inevitable. There are ways we can do more sooner and we must do more sooner. Thanks for joining us. I really appreciate your attention to this critical issue. Thank you. That was Colorado's Attorney General Phil Weiser sharing with us the details of a report his office released this week that shows the number of domestic violence deaths in Colorado reached an all-time high in 2022 for the second year in a row. The report also found that firearms are the number one cause of death here in our state and that those killed disproportionately are women. We'll link to the full report as well as a list of domestic violence resources at CPR.org. October, again, is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. If you or someone you know is experiencing abuse, you may call the National Domestic Violence Hotline 24 hours a day at 1-800-799-7233. That's 1-800-799-7233. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. The life of a rodeo cowboy is not easy. Driving, flying, hitchhiking, doing whatever you can do to get to a rodeo. But for J.C. Trujillo, it all paid off. He became a world champion bareback rider. Decades later, at age 75, he's about to be inducted into the National Rodeo Hall of Fame. With all my heroes, you know, unbelievable. Meet the famed Colorado Cowboy at CPR.org. The U.S. House is back to work today after finally electing a new speaker yesterday. CPR's Washington, D.C. reporter Caitlin Kim has been following the drama that's unfolded over the last few weeks very closely. She joins us now to fill us in. Hi, Lynn. Hi, Chandra. 
So in the end, House Republicans voted unanimously to make Republican Representative Mike Johnson of Louisiana as speaker. And that includes Colorado's three GOP lawmakers. Did you get to ask them why they supported him? Well, Congresswoman Lauren Boebert made it pretty clear she's a big fan. I think she tweeted out two different selfies with um, Johnson, one from from when he got the conference nomination and the other from the chamber after he actually cinched the gavel. So she wrote that he'll be a strong conservative leader in the House and unite, frankly, what has been a really fractured Republican conference. That will be no easy task. Now, Congressman Doug Lamborn also sang Johnson's praises. You know, he told me he thinks he's a great guy and that most in the conference respect him. They know each other from Johnson's time as chair of the Republican Study Committee. He was a servant leader, you might say, uh, very uh, hardworking and attentive to people's individual concerns. You know, the other thing, though, that Lamborn and others pointed out, Johnson hasn't made enemies. You know, he's not a big name, only in his fourth term. He was in leadership, but lower down. And that anonymity actually helped him get the votes where others who have been here longer and are more well-known failed. Now, it was a shift to see all three Coloradans supporting the same nominee because they had been split on earlier candidates, right? Yes, that is right. You know, Boebert opposed the first speaker designate, uh, Steve Scalise. When he was selected by the conference, she left that meeting saying she would be voting for Jim Jordan. Then, when Jordan did become the nominee, Congressman Ken Buck was one of the holdouts against him. You know, all three reportedly did support um, Tom Emmer in conference. That was the third nominee when he became the speaker designate. But then that got derailed by former President Donald Trump. Now, you reported that one of Buck's big concerns about Jordan was the role he played in trying to overturn the 2020 election for Donald Trump. But Johnson was also involved in that effort, and Buck voted for him yesterday. How does Buck square that? You know, Buck told me he knows that Johnson, like a majority of the Republican conference, voted to decertify the 2020 presidential election that he wrote the amicus brief supporting a Texas lawsuit to throw out results in battleground states, which both Buck and Lamborn also signed on to, I'll add. But Buck said, unlike Jordan, who was front and center and talking with the White House, Johnson wasn't, quote, intimately involved, unquote, in the planning or operation of January 6th. And that, to Buck, made the difference. You know, he is trying to thread a needle because Democrats are all bringing up that Johnson is an election denier and that he was an architect of the legal arguments to challenge the certification in the chamber on January 6th. Hmm. Did you get to talk to any of Colorado's Democratic delegation about what they think of the new speaker? I did. Look, Johnson is a very conservative lawmaker, and as I mentioned, many see him as an election denier. Now, that said, they also know they're in the minority, and they're hoping to find some bipartisan solutions on important issues. Johnson alluded to that in his speech to the chamber, you know, talking about minority leader Hakeem Jeffries. He said, you know, he knows that they love America, they care about the country and want to do what's right, so we're going to find common ground. And, you know, Democratic Congressman Jason Crow was glad Johnson said that. But like many things in the House of Representatives, what you say and what you do are two different things. So I'm glad he did say them. That was the right thing to say. Uh, But I'm going to be judging him on his actions and the things that he's pushing forward on the agenda. Lynn, you have been in the halls of Congress for these past three weeks of what many have described as chaos. 
What was the mood like yesterday? Did it feel like things had shifted in the Republican caucus? Yes. You know, you can almost sense the relief. Look, it was, as you mentioned, three weeks, very long weeks of chaos (laughs) and seeing Republicans metaphorically knife one another during those three weeks. You know, calls for unity going unheeded and watching as all the top candidates failed. Everyone was exhausted and tempers got shorter as this thing dragged on and on and on. So Johnson benefited from that. And I think everyone in that conference was glad that after three weeks of paralysis, they could actually find someone no one could really object to. Because to be clear, electing a speaker is usually a very easy thing for a conference to do. And Buck thinks this conference has learned a lesson. Uh, the reality is that, that we can't go through this uh, exercise again. We have somebody that, that, that 217 people initially have confidence in, much different than the 15 votes um, with, with Speaker McCarthy. So I, I think, yes, I think we will move forward and, and everybody will be more willing to compromise. And Johnson's going to need that because there's a lot of ho- there's a lot that the House needs to tackle, some of it pretty quickly. So now that the House is back at work. What's next? Well, last night they passed a resolution in support of Israel, but the big issue will be aid for Israel and Ukraine and the budget. Government funding runs out on November 17th. That's in 22 days. So they have a lot to do. All that said, the House is getting ready for a long weekend, so it won't be back uh, until late Wednesday now. (laughs) Well, lots to watch here. Lynn, thank you so much. Thank you, Chandra. That's CPR Washington, D.C. correspondent Caitlin Kim filling us in on what Colorado House representatives are saying about the Speaker of the House election. Election workers are getting threats and the integrity of the system is being questioned. So clerks in Colorado's two largest counties will change how much of the election they share with the public. Here's CPR's public affairs reporter, Benta Brooklyn. In 2020, Denver tried something new with its ballot processing. It set up a live stream to let people watch in real time. It was the level of transparency that we wanted to showcase and show off. Denver's clerk, Democrat Paul Lopez. The fact that we were able to live stream that, I thought was pretty novel, especially given 2020 where folks are at home because of the pandemic and you know we're getting a whole bunch of misinformation about what happens during the elections process. But with this election, Lopez is reversing course and turning off the feed. He says there are just too many threats against election workers and judges. If you look at the live stream, you actually see faces. And there has been efforts to discourage, particularly Republicans from being election judges, or to intimidate them, to dox them. In El Paso County, Republican clerk Steve Schleicher says he can understand Lopez's decision. He has no plans to live stream his workers doing ballot processing. Their safety is first and foremost, you know, uh, number one priority to me. And especially, you know, how the political climate is today. But Schleicher is using cameras in a new way this election. For the first time, El Paso County has live streams at all of its 39 ballot drop box locations. Schleicher says the goal is to help combat false claims that people stuff drop boxes with potentially fake ballots. When folks are sitting there talking about ballot harvesting, you know, this, 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 you know what? Hey, show me. The information's now out there. 
Colorado law requires counties to keep their drop boxes and other election equipment under video surveillance throughout each election, but streaming the feeds is a new development. Other counties are also considering live streaming ballot boxes next year. I'm Benta Berkland, CPR News. When we come back, we revisit a Colorado ghost town just in time for Halloween. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. He was called the man of a thousand faces. Lon Chaney was born in Colorado Springs in 1883. The child of deaf parents and grandson of the founder of the Colorado School for the Deaf and Blind, Chaney mastered pantomime at a young age. After a start as a prop boy at the Colorado Springs Opera House, he became an actor. First vaudeville stages, then Hollywood, during the era when body language and facial expressions did the talking. In film after film, using makeup and sometimes torturous costumes, he played the role of the outsider with conviction, strapping his shins behind him to become a man with no legs, bending his nose upward with wire to create the skull-like face of the Phantom of the Opera, and harnessing 50 pounds to his shoulders as the Hunchback of Notre Dame. And he did it all for more than shock value. As Cheney wrote, the lowest types of humanity may have within them the capacity for supreme self-sacrifice. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of National Jewish Health. Halloween is just around the corner, so we thought it was a great time to revisit a Colorado ghost town. Carpenter was located in the barest of the, de- the desert north of Grand Junction at the base of the Book Cliff Mountains. Its name comes from its founder, J.T. Carpenter. More than a century ago, Carpenter was on track to overshadow Grand Junction. But now there's almost nothing left. Ike Rokeski is with the Mesa County Library. He spoke with my colleague Andrea Dukakis last October. Ike, welcome. Thank you. You've done quite a bit of hiking around the old town of Carpenter. Tell us what we would see or not see in Carpenter today. I'd say that today what you would see at Carpenter is kind of a shell of its former self. At one point during Carpenter's heyday, it was quite a little town. It's interesting to see photos, historic photos of Carpenter, and to say like, whoa, what are these? There's like 10, 12 buildings here. And some of the buildings were quite elaborate. You'll find other random things. There's a a boulder with the year 1907 carved into it. You'll also see the grade of the old railroad. Who was the man who started it all, W.T. Carpenter? What was it that made him see the area as something that had potential? W.T. Carpenter had moved to the Grand Valley from Illinois. And what it was, the, the draw for the town of Carpenter, was, it was a mining camp for coal mining. He saw it, it wasn't just the, the two coal mines at Carpenter. There was the, the Bookcliff Mine and also the Grand Valley Mine. You also had the railroad which allowed them to get the coal from the mines down to Grand Junction. And then U.S. also had these kind of interesting entrepreneurial ideas or pursuits that W.T. Carpenter um, envisioned in his mind. You had the spring that's located nearby, other tourist draws that would bring people up to Carpenter. You know, a fancy place back east or maybe something like Glenwood Springs. He wanted it to be more than just the coal mines. Yeah, did people buy into WT's plan for Carpenter that it would become a resort? I would say the whole like larger resort idea never really materialized. 
there was kind of a discussion amongst locals in the Grand Valley about what town would really take off, whether it would be Carpenter or Grand Junction. And nowadays we know the result of that debate. We're here in downtown Grand Junction on Main Street, but it... Carpenter was a place to go for a lot of people. There were school groups that would go up there. There were groups that would go up there in the spring. Um, it sounds like the area around Carpenter was just filled with fields of wildflowers. So you would you would see stories in the newspaper. You would even see photos of these groups, you know, dressed up to go all the way out into the middle of the desert, a pretty desolate place. But going out to pick wildflowers was one of those things that brought pretty large groups to the town. Let's talk a little bit more about the Little Book Cliff Railroad that went from Carpenter right into the heart of Grand Junction. How important was that to the area's past? Yeah, so I've been to both as as research as a librarian and also just as a recreational avid hiker in Mesa County. I've been to other ghost towns here in Mesa County. You don't have railroad tracks. You don't have railroads leading to those other ghost towns. The Bookcliff Railway allowed Carpenter to become a lot more than what it would have necessarily become. To me, having a, a railroad, any kind of railroad, connect a pretty rural ghost town or mining camp to what was really a developing Grand Junction would have made it pretty special in that way. During the town of Carpenter's heyday, W.T. also built this lake in Grand Junction. He called it Rockaway Beach, and he sold yep. he sold home sites along it. He said it was going to be equal to Capitol Hill in Denver. Does Rockaway Beach still exist? It does. So the lake is actually, there's the lakeside neighborhood here in Grand Junction. It's a nice little lake surrounded by green, you know, and and where we are, it's the, we're in the high desert. The fact that that lake still exists in is, is a nice little place to go and hang out. And the lake is one of the, probably in my opinion, one of the most pristine remnants of Carpenter's vision. It sounds like though it doesn't bear any resemblance to Capitol Hill in Denver. Yeah. And I mean, I've seen other examples that are similar where you have a man like W.T. Carpenter is, you know, not only was he a banker, an entrepreneur, an investor, but he was also just a, a booster of his idea. Um, he wanted to make it sound like it was maybe bigger than it actually was. Carpenter, the place, was going along just fine until 1893. That's when the silver market crashed, and that started to pull the coal industry down with it. And W.T.'s fortunes began to slip away. In 1897, he lost everything, or pretty much everything. He took off for the Yukon to try to make it there, and he ended up running a lemonade stand in Dawson, (laughs) Alaska. That eventually turned into a money-making lunch counter. And the next owner, Phillips, made this addition to Carpenter. He added sort of a carnival ride. Tell us about the Go Devil. Yep. So the Go Devil was a no motorized, not motorized at all. And it would take people from the Grand Junction or, or anywhere in the Grand Valley and probably outside of the Grand Valley. It could take them all the way up to the foot of the book cliffs where the town was. And then using gravity... Um, and possibly wind, things like that, it could take them all the way back down to Grand Junction. 
handbrake operated. If something like that existed nowadays, I wonder if it would even be possible due to possible safety concerns and liability and things like that. Phillips himself didn't buy Carpenter with his own money. It was financed by his uncle back in Massachusetts. I understand when that uncle died, Carpenter actually ends up in the hands of Princeton University. How did that happen? You kind of wonder, yeah, it's like, how did an Ivy League school like Princeton, where was that connection? It was owned by the school for quite a while. I don't think a long period of time, but quite a while. Yeah, you have this Ivy League school back in the East Coast, and then you have it oversee these coal mines in the camp. And it's just kind of an interesting little side note in history, I think. Then Carpenter sort of dropped off the map and was pretty much forgotten until the 1960s. Some teens were exploring out in the desert, and they stumbled on what was left of Carpenter, and that sparked a flurry of attention, a lot of vandalizing, and most of what was left in town was hauled off. Then flash forward to 1989, Carpenter was in the news again when three Grand Junction teens died there. What what happened? Yeah, so I was about 10 years old when that, that tragic accident occurred. As far as I understand, there were six young people, six teens, who went into the Bookcliff mine, and then three of them tragically died because of the fumes. And then what actually the cause of their death, as far as I understand, was the lack of oxygen at the bottom of the floor of the mine. And the three other ones were able to escape and get back to the nearest town and neighborhood and call call the authorities. It seems that very few people in the area have even heard about Carpenter. Has there been any movement to memorialize it? There is a memorial to the teens who died at the Bookcliff Mine. I only ever heard about Carpenter through my work as a librarian at, at Mesa County Libraries, and a patron had actually asked me about it. I thought, I've never even heard of Carpenter. But beyond that, there's not a whole lot of knowledge about the town of Carpenter. The good news, though, is that there's the book that exists that really is a gem um, as far as talking about the history of the town. Ike, thanks so much. Sure. Thank you. Ike Rokeski is with the Mesa County Library. He spoke with my colleague Andrea Dukakis last October about the Mesa County ghost town of Carpenter, which mostly has been lost to scavengers and to the shifting sands of time. The coffee table book he mentioned is called Little Book Cliff Railway. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is CPR News and KRCC. Mm-hmm.